In a country where the Constitution provides that every citizen has a right to a jury trial, how is it that we've gotten to a point, and by the way, plea bargaining was unknown at the founding. It didn't happen. And in most countries, plea bargaining is not a significant part of the criminal justice system. Why in America has the, uh, the procedure that is contemplated, not only contemplated, but prescribed by the Constitution, why has that procedure, the criminal jury trial, um, a procedure that is not only there for defendants, but that very deliberately places citizen participation at the very heart of our criminal justice system, how and why have we ripped out that cornerstone of American criminal justice and substituted it with a procedure, plea bargaining, that takes what was meant to be a public, transparent, and accountable process and causes most of it to take place under the radar screen and behind closed doors? I think it is extraordinarily problematic for a number of reasons, including the loss of transparency, the loss of accountability, and just the loss of information that people have about how their criminal justice system operates. Remember that every time a prosecutor goes into court, whether a state or federal court, they tell the judge the first words out of their mouth is that they're here on behalf of the people of that state or of the United States. In other words, they are there in our names. And because so much of criminal justice is done behind closed doors, we don't know what they are doing in our names. We can see the results, but we can't see the process. And we should see the process. And the Constitution contemplates that the process would be one that is public and transparent and accountable. And the advent of plea bargaining, the, uh, the substitution of plea bargaining um, for, for the criminal jury trial that our Constitution prescribes um, is one of the real hallmarks of the American criminal justice system, um, and I think very troubling. So the two questions present themselves and we'll discuss here today. One is, um, is it a problem? Is it a problem that we've essentially substituted the criminal jury trial or substituted plea bargaining for the criminal jury trial? And second, what if anything can we do about it? What if anything should we do about it? Thank you all so much for being here today in person. Those of you who are online, thank you for being here. We look forward to discussing this issue with, my, with the panelists who I'll introduce, um, and then we'll hear from them. So our first panelist um, is uh, Judge Joseph Goodwin from the Southern District of West Virginia. And um, he's, his, as I mentioned, it was his trio of opinions that um, uh, prompted this event. It's why we're here today to discuss uh, the judge's new policy of, of essentially not accepting plea bargains um, in, in uh, most cases. Um, Judge Goodwin was appointed to the bench in 1995 by President Clinton. He is a West Virginia graduate, both undergrad and law school, um, and he's had a long and distinguished service uh, on the district court. Next to Judge Goodwin is uh, Scott Greenfield, who is a criminal defense lawyer in New York City uh, and a, uh, a voluble and prolific blogger on his site, Simple Justice. Uh, and we're very happy to have Scott with us today. And finally, uh, from the University of Illinois, Professor Suja Thomas, uh, who has done extraordinary scholarship in this area and has uh, written a book called The Missing American Jury, Restoring the Fundamental Constitutional Role of the Criminal, Civil, and Grand Juries. I want to thank all of the panelists for being here today, and again, thank all of you for being here for this event. Judge? Thank you, Clark. Uh, good afternoon. I'm delighted to be here. Several of my former law clerks who have found their way to Washington, D.C. Uh, are in attendance, and for that I am delighted. Uh, 
This is a fairly serious subject, so I'll go fast. Uh, plea bargained, uh, guilty pleas, uh, as Clark has said, have replaced the jury trial. Jury trials occur in less than 3% of the cases brought by the federal government. Now, jury trials are ubiquitous on television. We all watch them every night. But they're extremely rare in the great big federal courthouses across this country. Federal prosecutors can go for years and not try a case. In fact, while uh, not long ago, the average assistant U.S. attorney tried eight cases a year, they now try 0.2 cases per year on average. Uh, plea bargaining is no longer an adjunct to the trial process. Uh, it is the criminal process, as uh, Justice Kennedy said. Uh, it's, near, it's a near total substitution now for what our founding fathers envisioned as the normal participatory system of criminal justice calling for jury trials. At our founding, the people established pop popular so sovereignty resting on principles of participatory equality and personal liberty. The United States uh, Constitution makes it clear that this is a participatory democracy and each of the three branches of government depend upon and require the active participation of the people in the exercise of that power. Now the courts, the bar, and the academy continue to give lip service to the idea that juries are vital to a transparent and effective criminal justice system, as well as to a vibrant democracy more generally. This is, after all, meant to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Few people are aware that the United States criminal justice system has transitioned uh, from a realm of regular public participation to one of public exclusion. Contrary to those television shows that we watch, determination of an individual's guilt or innocence plays out in the prosecutor's office, and the judges simply stamp those negotiations to empty courtrooms. My concerns with plea bargaining relate principally to the effects arising from that lack of public participation, and to my con conclusion that the jury trial is fundamental and essential to securing the liberty of the people. One scholar has said, rights, including the jury trial, are not solely the possession of an individual. They are cultural artifacts that must be preserved in order to finally realize freedom. Nevertheless, the modern practice of plea bargaining has almost eliminated the role of the people in the criminal justice system. It treats the accused as a voluntary, rational actor in a marketplace where reductions in his loss of liberty are traded for determinations of his guilt. Viewing uh, a criminal case like it exists in a marketplace of freely bargaining actors the government treats its constitutional duties as if they may be waived solely by the accused and the people retain no interest. And the courts regularly adopt this view uh, and routinely accept proffered plea bargains. It is a rare thing to reject a plea bargain. 
I conclude that I should give, uh, and this is what my cases say, I conclude that I should give great weight to the people's interest in participating in the criminal justice system when considering under Rule 11E whether to accept or reject a proffered plea agreement. In my view, the scales of justice uh, tip in favor of rejecting plea bargains unless I'm presented with some counterbalance of case-specific factors that are sufficiently compelling to overcome that pe the people's interest in participation. Now, plea bargains are efficient and they are expedient, but and that is those are offered as the principal justifications for substituting plea bargains for jury trials. In recent uh, opinions, I've tried to make it clear, although I had to write three opinions to get there, that expediency and efficiency will rarely be uh, adequate to justify the deprivation of liberty without the people's participation. It certainly would be more efficient if defendants didn't have lawyers, and no search warrants were required, and the government was a, could accuse uh, people as it sees fit. But as I have said in another context, we must carefully segregate those efficiencies which are the mere product of time and place which we would be foolish uh, to retain, from those which are deliberately built into our system to protect a free people from the convenience of the guillotine. I am aware of the jurisprudence reflecting the shift toward viewing the jury trial as something solely within the control of the accused and not as something held by the people. But I don't think those views even uh, contemplated eradicating jury trials with the complete substitution of backroom deals where liberty is currency. That's where we are today. I conclude uh, with these, what I intend to be provocative remarks. Prosecutors are not overworked. Courts are not overworked. The people of the United States have been conned into believing that they have a criminal justice system anchored by the jury trial. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I come from the perspective of uh, writing about the right to a jury trial and the power of the jury. And so a lot of times people don't think about the fact that actually in the original Constitution in Article 3, Section 2, it states the trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment shall be by jury. And that's in addition to in the Sixth Amendment, which provides that um, there's a right to an impartial jury. And so in my writings, um, which um, as Clark mentioned, I wrote a book called The Missing American Jury. I call attention to the fact that juries decide very few cases as everyone so far has been talking about. And plea bargaining is this huge part of that, as, as many of you know. And so I want to give this some context by talking about a case uh, that I'm um, um, working with um, in a documentary project that I'm working on about how juries decide very few cases um, and how this is very problematic. So we're featuring a man by the name of Rodney Roberts. Um, Rodney was 29 years old in the late 90s. 
and Rodney had um, a good job with a men's clothing store. Um, he had a son who he had just recently enrolled in school, uh, and um, he had just gotten an apartment in Montclair, New Jersey, and he was accused of sexual assault and kidnapping. And he had a previous conviction, uh, and he actually wouldn't even go into the courtroom. He was so mad that he had been accused of this crime when he was asked to give his original plea of not guilty. Well, a few months passed by. Um, he's told there's a witness, that is the person who was sexually assaulted, that she will actually testify that he's the one who did it. And he's told that he's gonna get life in prison if he is convicted before a jury, um, versus he's gonna get seven years in prison if in fact he um, pleads guilty and he'll get out in two. So Rodney has a son. He has this life that started, and he's like, I'm not going to actually have any life at all if I'm convicted before a jury. So he pleads guilty, and he's like, I'm going to fight this when I get out. Two years pass by, he isn't let out. Seven years pass by, and he's told that he is now going to be civilly committed um, because the attorney general has said that he's dangerous because of the sexual assault charge. And so 10 years later, 17 years of incarceration, he's found to have not committed this crime through DNA evidence. And in fact, prior to that, the, the witness, um, the woman who had been insulted, said she had never identified him as the person who did this. So um, why did he do this? Why did he plead to something that he did not do. He did it because of the trial tax. Um, and many people do this. They plead guilty even though they didn't commit the crime. Um, it's something like 10 to 15 percent of the, the people who actually have found, been found innocent actually pled um, guilty. So this is, I think, extremely problematic. But I will also say that I think the problem of plea bargaining or, or plea bargaining is problematic even if someone is guilty. Um, and so the, the Constitution sets up, as, as I said, two different provisions of the Constitution that provide the jury supposed to decide. And this was based on the English jury. And the English jury was such that um, grand juries decided whether cases should proceed against criminal defendants and juries decided whether defendants were guilty of crimes. Um, and as Clark mentioned, um, historically, um, there was no such trial tax that was permitted to be imposed. And so if you, um, most, almost everyone, virtually everyone, insisted on taking their jury trial, and the very, very, very few that did not received the same sentence um, if they pled guilty versus if they went to um, trial. And so what are we missing now by the fact that juries don't decide cases? We don't have a check on prosecutions. We don't have a check on the legislature and the laws. And we also don't have a check on judges who, who Blackstone said could, in fact, be, be, have bias. Um, so we need reform, and I think we're going to talk about that today. And the last comment I just kind of want to make is, if we look at what the jury um, was in the past, um, there were 12 people who had to say yes to um, uh, going forward with the case on the grand jury. And then you had 12 people who had to convict a person of a crime. So you had 24 people in the past who had to say yes to a, a person being convicted. Now, in many, many, many cases, we have only one person, the prosecutor, who by the way, as we know, has an incentive to convict. And so we have no check on the prosecution, no check on the police. Um, and, um, you know, this is, of course, I think, uh, in dire need of reform. And effectively, we have no right to a jury trial. Um, thank you.
Odd guy that has to sit here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wherever you're most comfortable. Yeah, we want you comfortable. That would be at Boulay. Uh -huh. <laughs> Not that comfortable. So I'm here to be the skunk at the garden party. <laughs> I'll tell you a secret from a defense lawyer's point of view. There is nothing more fun about this job than going to trial. There is nothing we dream about more than making an agent cry on the stand. We live for that. And yet, the joy of our job is not what this is about. It is about the life of a client. And so while many of these things sound wonderful at a, a theoretical level, we're stuck dealing with human beings. Judge Goodwin said that rights are cultural artifacts. I say, no, they're the things owned by my guy who's going to be sitting in prison for the rest of his life until he dies there. And frankly, people sitting outside of prison talking about how their rights are implicated, let them change places with my client before they decide what they're going to uh, call a more important right, his right to get out alive to see his children again before he dies, or their right to have wondrous platitudes spread across the land. Because every single person that goes on trial, every single person who's indicted and charged, that guy stands there by himself with a lawyer next to him and has to make the most important decision of his life. And platitudes don't save him. As Sue just said, the big issue is going to be the trial tax. Unfortunately, it's also somewhat a misleadingly obvious issue. Um, just last week, the uh, NACDL came out with a report and basically said that the problem with vanishing trials is simple because of the trial tax. Well, it's true, but it's inadequate. I went back and thought, how come we had about 20% trials before a case called Mistretta in 1989, where the Supreme Court decided that the uh, sentencing guidelines, mandatory, were constitutional. Later on in Booker, they said, oops, only kidding. But at that time, it changed the world. The day after Mistretta, there was a line outside the U.S. Attorney's Office, a block and a half long, of people walking their clients in to be rats. Why? Because the only way they were going to get out from under those guidelines was a 5K1 letter. But that's not the only consideration. So I, I made a list in preparation of being here today of what changed since 89. How did we go from 20% trials to under 3% trials? Well, street crime is now being prosecuted in federal court, whereas federal courts were clean and pristine. You never saw anybody who was dirty or smelly or poor. They were always in suits and looked wonderful. Until one day they decided in Congress that this is no good. There's all these criminals, and we can make a lot of hay off this, so 
Let's bring them into our courts and prosecute them there. Then they came up with something called Federal Day. I don't know how many of you people know what that is. But one day a week, whoever was arrested on a drug crime would get shipped off to federal court rather than state court. So suddenly their sentences went from, say, seven years to 34 years. We started having a, a wealth of one-size-fits-all laws, um, three strikes, zero tolerance, mandatory minimums, 851 enhancements, because they were really easy sells to the public. It didn't take much brain power to say, gee whiz, three strikes, you're out. That's right. They don't deserve to be out on the street, except it was never that simple. It's a simple sell of an easy platitude, but one strike was a shoplifting when the kid was 12. The second strike was uh, stealing bread when his children were hungry. And the third strike, because he couldn't get a job after the first two, was selling weed on the street corner. And suddenly he's facing life in prison. Conspiracy charges, the darling of the prosecution. And in drug cases, you don't even need an overt act. So when you have 20 people on a conspiracy, you have a guy at the top, you have a guy who's running a paper bag from the barbershop to the street corner, that guy on the bottom is getting nailed for 842 kilos because the guy on the top, who is doing big business, everything gets charged to everybody in that conspiracy. Not to mention, every statement made by any person in that conspiracy ever in the history of man gets in on trial. Snitches. Every case has a snitch. Every case has a cooperator. It's one thing to have the agent say that you did X. It's another thing to have your brother say it, to have children snitching on their parents, parents snitching on their children. But you know something? When you're looking at life in prison, hey, do what you got to do. Eavesdropping warrants, Title III warrants, they were so reluctantly granted. In fact, they were so resistant to it that magistrate judges could not issue Title III warrants. It had to go to a district judge. People were really nervous back then about eavesdropping on telephones. It was so intrusive, it was wrong, it was un-American, and only in the most serious of cases would a Title III warrant be granted. Today, routine. You see them in almost every case. We can go on. States that have ratcheted up their punishments to match the federal punishments. We now have uh, a cadre of federal judges who never practiced law before Mistretta, before the sentencing guidelines came into effect, who believe that level 34 is a perfectly normal punishment for a crime. Um, they don't realize that these same offenses, before the sentencing guidelines, were getting a year and a day that are now getting 121 months. They think 121 months is necessary. They hang it on a, a clause in uh, 18 U.S.C. 3553A called the parsimony clause that you're to sentence no more than necessary. What's necessary? What is a necessary length of a human being's life to tell him that the guy who couldn't get a job doing anything else and was selling weed on the corner really needs to spend 10 years in prison to learn the lesson? These numbers aren't real. The sentencing guideline numbers aren't real. They made them up. 
the whole drug uh, chart, the whole drug schedule doubled when a guy in, in the 80s named Len Bias died and the whole country went nuts over drugs and it was an epidemic and we had to do something. The claim that the sentencing guidelines are empirical is not true. They do not reflect some sort of an average across the nation. They didn't reflect sentencing anywhere ever. They made them up and they called them empirical and everybody went, and said, well, if they're empirical, these must be the right sentences. There's no magic to any of this. We've come to believe in this, and we've got a new group of federal judges who don't know any different and believe that it, this really is a legitimate system. And so why don't people go to trial? Because they're going to get slaughtered. Because nobody willingly walks into suicide. You can't win a trial when you're looking at snitches, half your case turned and flipped on you when you're looking at testimony coming in and conspiracies, it's gonna kill you. Yes, the trial tax, the disparity between the plea offer and the sentence after trial is going to be huge. But even if we closed that disparity, made it 10% increase, made it a year difference, who willingly gives up a year of their life knowing that there is almost no opportunity to beat the charges? I look at the criminal justice system as a Rube Goldberg machine, where we keep adding a stupid boot or a little roll ball to try to fix a problem that we know exists. Plea bargaining was part of the system before the sentencing guidelines came in. It was part of what was intended when the sentencing guidelines were made so burdensome, to coerce people into cooperating, to coerce people into pleading. If we got rid of plea bargaining, we'd be left with that top end that nobody ever really expects anybody to get. Nobody's gonna go to trial on life plus cancer when he's got no chance of prevailing. You gotta be nuts. And so what we're gonna be left with is these ridiculously high sentences. For what? Well, for the sake of the public because they have a right to participate, except they really don't. Jury trials are not a right for the public. It's a right for the defendant. He can waive it, he can choose to go with a bench trial. He doesn't have to take a jury, you know why? Because this is not about a game for the public to be involved and to watch. This is about people's lives and they're the ones who pay the price for it. So as nice as the platitudes are, let's not forget that when you walk out of court at the end of trial, that guy's going to lock up and he's never gonna breathe free air again. The only thing worse than plea bargaining is no plea bargaining. Thank you, Scott, for those characteristically restrained remarks. <laughs> uh, I want to do two things uh, to get the conversation started. First, I want to um, give a shout out to our friends at the uh, NACDL, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, um, they, they came out with an extraordinary report a couple weeks ago called the trial penalty, which as Scott referred to, um, the technical definition of the trial penalty is the differential between the punishment that you will receive if you accept the plea offer and the punishment you'll receive if you exercise your constitutional right to go to a jury trial and you lose. Uh, and you have copies of the, the trial penalty available uh, outside. I encourage you to pick it up. If, if, if you can't get your hands on one or you don't want to carry it, it's also available online. NACDL. 
trial penalty. I think every American should read this report because it documents a feature of our criminal justice system that I think most people are unaware of, which is that the differential between what prosecutors threaten people with if they exercise their constitutional right to a jury trial and what prosecutors are prepared to offer people if they waive that right is persistent and in many cases it is enormous. And that leads into the first question that I wanted to, to, to share with the panelists or ask the panelists to weigh in on. In many, if not, I think actually all countries except the US, there, is, there are legal limits on the differential uh, between what a prosecutor can threaten you with and what they can offer. And one of the most pro-prosecution countries other than the US is Great Britain. And even there, there is a legal limit of, I believe, 30%. In other words, they can't offer a discount of more than 30%. What limits are there in America on the ability of a prosecutor to try to leverage a plea by threatening an enormous punishment, but then offering a sweet deal? What limits are there on, on prosecutors in that regard here in the States? Anybody want to start? Suja, you've been nodding the whole time. Do you want to tell us what limits there are on prosecutors in terms of what offers they can make? Um, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I, maybe that you all have better um, uh, ideas on this, but I mean, I don't think there is much of, of any limit on, on plea bargaining at this point. Um, in fact, it goes so far as there's so many things that prosecutors can do like um, say we're not going to give you the exculpatory evidence. It even you know even in this in in this circumstance where we're offering this huge difference between um, um, what's available at the plea and what's available if you're convicted before a jury trial. We even require that you um, waive your motions and you can't um, uh, make motions, for example, to suppress evidence. You know, in case that you would win that and maybe actually be more successful at trial. So. I, I don't um, see a whole lot of limits um, at all. I think that plea bargaining is incredibly, um, uh, it's excessive. Um, and it, I would even go so far as to say it's unconstitutional, which I think um, the judge might uh, agree with me on. Um, and I think um, we may talk about this later, but I think there's a possibility with respect to what, what Scott talked about with um, cooperators. Um, it's a possibility that Historically, that was actually, um, there, was some, there is some um, historical um, uh, background of actually using um, cooperators and having them get a deal. Um, and so maybe we can talk about that as well. But So Scott and Judge, I'd like you to weigh in too. Are there any limits on the discretion of a prosecutor? Is there anything in our system that, that places limits on the differential between what a prosecutor can threaten you with and what they can offer you in a plea? Well, I, I want to first... Um point out that I cleaned up my language because I usually <laughs> call cooperators rats, and today I called them snitches, so as not to be offensive. You said rats once. Did I? No. Sorry. Um, as far as a, a, an institutional limit, no. As far as a practical limit, yeah. The practical limit is I say to you, I don't like that plea offer, Mr. Prosecutor, so you know what? Shove it up your ass and we're going to trial. Um, is that a legal term? Yes. Okay. Would you like the Latin root? I really wouldn't. The point is, the point is that the, the counterbalance is two things. One, the fact that the prosecutor knows that the defense is prepared to go to trial. And two, that he's capable of going to trial. Meaning, unlike the uh, AUSA who has made it through his entire commitment without having tried a case, the defense lawyer says, I've tried cases. I will try this case. I can try this case, and I can make your agents cry. So if you don't improve your plea offer, 
to something that my client can live with? The answer is no, and we're going to, client, uh, going to trial. It's clout. They have it. Does the defense have it? Judge, uh, two questions. I'm going to repeat the first one. Are there any limits on the ability of prosecutors uh, in, in terms of this differential? And if they're not, should there be? Yes, there are limits. Uh, the first is the provision in the Fifth Amendment for grand juries. Uh, no serious crime is allowed to be brought as an accusation unless upon indictment. Uh, the language in the Fifth Amendment is completely mandatory. It doesn't say that you can have uh, uh, waivers uh, that, uh, they, that belongs to the defendant. It says no person shall be. Uh, so that's one limit. Uh, another limit is uh, the one uh, that was on uh, Senator McCarthy. At last, sir, have you no decency? Uh, we have to think that in a democracy, as we look uh, to our public officials, uh, we can expect a modicum of decency. Well, I'd like to share a personal story very quickly, if I may. This uh, the question of the trial penalty was brought home to me in a very personal way when I befriended um, a person about my age, uh, I'm going to use a pseudonym, call him John, uh, who was targeted by the federal government for some business-related crimes, of which I believe him to be innocent, um, about 10 years ago. Uh, and he has a memoir that he's written that I'm trying to help him get published, but it's under a gag order right now, but we're working on that. He was threatened with 220 years in prison. And the government's first plea offer was 10, then five, then three. And on the eve of trial, they finally offered two years in a camp. And I don't think that anybody involved in the prosecution end of that transaction can claim to embody the word decency. That was coercion, plain and simple. And Suja, I want to kick it back to you because you seem to have a bit of a wry look on your face when the judge was talking about the extent to which a grand jury might impose limits. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to elaborate. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think the judge obviously knows this, but you know, this is something that can be waived, right? And, and, and it's, not, it's not something that should be able to be waived. The, the judge has the Constitution on his side. Unfortunately, um, we have rules that permit this. And the United States Supreme Court um, has permitted all of this to, to go forward. Um, just really quickly, some of you may um, not be aware of a case called Bordenkircher. Um, it's a case decided by the United States Supreme Court in 1978. Out and, of West Virginia. Oh, oh yeah. And then, and um, in that case, the prosecutor had indicted the um, the uh, the criminal defendant um, who was accused, accused of forging a check for about ninety dollars on a crime that subjected him to two years to 10 years in prison. And, he's, and they said, take five years, plead guilty, take five years. But if you don't, we're gonna go back to the grand jury and indict you on a crime that subjects you to life in prison. Um, and in fact, um, the, the, the criminal defendant um, uh, said, no, I'm not taking five years for a forged check of $90. Um, and he went back to the um, grand jury, indicted him on the crime that subjected him to life in prison, was convicted. This case goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court says, this, is, this plea bargain is important. It's important to our criminal justice system. Um, there's absolutely nothing, though, in the Constitution um, that supports that, including our, our history. I think, right. go ahead, please. It, it, it seems to me that, uh, and this is in slight rebuttal to what Scott said in his opening, 
that we have things as they are and the, the real world uh, that he deals with, but no one of us, I believe, want a constitution that isn't idealistic, that isn't platitudinous. We want those rights that are set forth in the Bill of Rights. We want uh, those protections that the Constitution uh, affords us and guarantees as a measure of freedom. I really believe that the state of liberty is the natural state of being in this kind of democracy. And in order to take liberty away from somebody, you shouldn't be able to buy it or threaten it. So that's a platitude. But. Uh, another elephant in the room, Scott, uh, feel free to, 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 to jump in. I, I, I'm going to try to feed you a question, though, and I just, <laughs> if you want to run with it. Um, okay. I think a, a, another elephant in the room that needs to be addressed is the following. Um, there was a time when the Supreme Court held that the Eighth Amendment required some uh, relationship between the culpability of the crime and the severity of the punishment. But the Supreme Court overturned that decision, and now there is no constitutional requirement, according to the Supreme Court, that there be any relationship between the culpability of the crime and the severity of the punishment. And that raises a very profound and troubling question, and that is, um, is it a permissible function of punishments to coerce a plea bargain? Imagine uh, you know, that, that someone in the legislature came out and said, I absolutely agree with you that the punishment that we've prescribed for this particular crime is disproportionate to the culpability of that crime, but a significant policy goal that we have is to enable prosecutors to leverage a plea and can keep the machine running efficiently, and that's why we make these penalties so severe. And I believe that there are members of Congress who have said something very close to that. Is that a legitimate function of punishment in our system? Legitimate? Of course not. Um, is it real? Of course it is. And, and that some people occasionally say something that's true happens. I mean, we can't stop that. Um, but no, it, it's, it's certainly... And, and this goes back to uh, what Judge Goodman just said about, uh, about platitudes. We do want an, a system that meets our ideals. We would want that system. And all of us do. The question is... How do we undo all the fixes and damage that we've loaded up on a system at the back end? Um, how can we have trials and, and fair trials and not trials that are so front-loaded for the prosecution that there isn't a chance? I mean, you can't, defendants can't testify, the 404B, the uh, obstruction enhancement. And let's face it, nobody believes the defendant who's there desperately pleading for his life and they get the instruction that he's an interested witness. Um, how do you accomplish that while at the same time you've got Congress, you've got sentencing guidelines, you've got these ridiculous mandatory minimums that tie judges' hands, which are clearly coercive, and everybody knows they're coercive, and everybody's pretty much okay with it whether or not they announce it uh, and say so. And frankly, the public is as is, is much to blame in the sense that decades of uh, tough on crime have made the public believe that sentences of 20 and 30 years are like normal human sentences. Whereas a, a person in 1985 who committed murder might get a 15-year sentence. The idea today, you'd have riots in the streets that something so serious and horrible uh, would result in such a light sentence. 
where did we come up with the idea that 15 years is light? The answer is we've been sold, as Judge said, we've been conned over all these years into thinking that sentences short of decades and decades are like gimmies and gifts. Think of in your own life. Think if you lost a year of your life. Think if you lost a month of your life. Is that inconsequential? Judge, could I fine tune the question for you? Yes, sir. Imagine a committee report that comes with a particular, you know, sort of a new uh, uh, crime and a new sentencing regime. And the committee report from Congress reads as follows. The committee has done its level best to make this new provision as coercive as possible in order to make our criminal justice system function as efficiently as possible. And it is our hope that we can drive the plea bargain rate for this particular crime up to 100% if possible. The prosecutor, in, in appearing before the judge uh, in the first prosecution under this new law, says, Your Honor, I have conducted the investigation and prosecution in the absolute most coercive way that I could think of. I've threatened as many of this person's family members as possible, and I'm, I've done everything in my power to avoid a trial. May I just interrupt? That's what may it please the court means. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> uh, under those circumstances, wouldn't we feel that perhaps there's a due process problem? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but they don't say that, do they? No, they don't. But on the other hand, I don't, and one of the reasons I said the public has been conned, and one of the reasons I find this panel and this discussion engaging, is that I don't think the public writ large or the bar or the academy uh, would uh, find it acceptable to say there shouldn't be juries. I understand Scott to say there aren't. As a practical matter, there aren't juries. So why don't we just admit that? Why don't we just write them out? Can, can I comment a little bit? Please do. So, so I, I think um, there's been some blame, at least I, I, I heard Scott um, say something about the public. I don't think the public is very aware of these circumstances. I've spoken to groups of, of people. I mean, obviously, it's selected groups of people. Sometimes it might be on one side of the political spectrum or another. But um, I don't think the public is generally aware of the fact that juries decide few cases, that most of the cases are plea bargained. I think that um, lawmakers have made these laws. I don't think the general public knows about it. I think the general public would be outraged by it. And I do think that going back to one of Scott's points, if you actually narrow the difference, I think some people would go to trial. Um, and um, I do think a lot of people would actually be acquitted. Back in the day when people in England were tried by juries, and I don't see any reason why our juries would be any different, there were a good number of people who would be acquitted or there would be partial verdicts, which is that they would uh, convict on other crimes based on potentially the, the sentence, which they would know. Um, and so I, I, um, I give a lot of credit to our public, and I think if um, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm working on the documentary project, because I think people are going to be outraged by the system that we have. I'll just say, I, I, I don't disagree with you that if there were more trials, there would be more acquittals. Um, one of the greatest defenses available to all of us is the prosecutor screwed up. Um, happens all the time. They, they go to trial, somehow a witness blows testimony, a prosecutor misses an objection, something you go through uh, in the course of trial just breaks in your favor, and next thing you know, uh, you got yourself a not guilty verdict, and that's going to happen. The problem that you have in any individual's case is can you tell the guy when you're 
having that conversation in MCC, he's in the orange jumpsuit, you're there, the room smells bad, and you say, but what's going to happen? And you say, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to happen. So they look at you again, and they're kind of sad, and they're about to cry, and they say, what's going to happen? And you're a lawyer, and you gotta, you got to give them advice. What do you tell them? Trust the jury? Juries do impose uh, their uh, will on uh, a case in their verdicts. Uh, this is not a very good example, but I have very long to think of it. Uh, in 1970, uh, if you took someone accused of drunk driving and marched them into court and pled them guilty, you were guilty of malpractice because uh, most people uh, would be acquitted by juries if they were charged uh, with drunk driving because the jury didn't like that charge. They thought, there but for the grace of God go I, because they all drove drunk. And so they acquitted many, many people of drunk driving. They imposed what was the community standard, uh, I suppose a form of jury nullification, on that set of circumstances. The same holds true for other crimes to uh, differing degrees. I would venture a guess uh, that if you wanted to take a marijuana case to trial in court in uh, Colorado now, you might have a tough time mm. as a prosecutor. Um, Judge, with your permission, I'd like to treat Mr. Greenfield as a hostile witness and ask him a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> he's, too, he's too good. You're not going <laughs> to... So, uh, Scott, I, I know the answer to this question because I asked you at dinner last night, but um, if you could be assured that a jury in a given case would be uh, informed about the penalty or the punishment that the defendant is likely to receive upon conviction, would that change your calculus in deciding which cases potentially to take to trial? Absolutely. Why? Uh, I don't think juries have any appreciation of what it is their decision ultimately produces. And I think, as Sue just said, if they understood the full consequences, the full significance, I think they'd be outraged. They might say, you know, yeah, he's probably guilty. But then they find out that that little bit of if in there is going to produce a sentence of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Holy crap, I don't think he's that guilty. And I think that would fundamentally alter the equation. I don't think juries have a clue just how serious the consequences of their decision are. And I think that would result in a significant nullification potential. Um, on follow-up, if I may. Yeah, Suja's written about this. Yeah. Well, I got one more question for my witness, and I'll, I'll <laughs> um, You've had some harsh things to say about snitches, and I want to make sure the audience understands the difference between a witness and a snitch. Could you explain Good. that, and then I want to ask you a specific question. Yeah, a witness is somebody who simply observed a crime, uh, observed some aspect of a case that has to be called. There's nothing dishonorable. There are perfectly honorable uh, it's a fully American thing to be a witness and to testify and to cooperate with the government. A snitch is somebody who is working off his own crime, somebody who's flipped, somebody who was a conspirator, a, a criminal in one case, maybe in the same case, maybe in a different case, who has said, you know what, I don't want to go to jail for all those years, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you every nasty thing that everybody in my case has done, uh, all the secrets, 
what mom uh, was selling when she was supposed to be uh, rearing children, that's a snitch. That's the guy who flips on his friends. And that is not an honorable way to get out from under a case. Did the prosecutor case. offer to reduce charges against somebody in order to elicit their, to, to get them to testify? Well, the promise, the way the typical promise is, if you testify truthfully at trial, we will uh, give you a 5K1 letter for your substantial cooperation. But you must testify truthfully. And that means that the other guy is guilty when you testify truthfully. You're messing up my cross, guy. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> can a prosecutor offer to set somebody up in a new location and a new job? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, so the prosecutor can offer things of value in exchange for testimony, right? Correct. What happens to you if you do that? I go to jail. Because it's a felony, isn't it? It is indeed. All right. And for a brief and shining moment, I know. it was a felony for them too. Right, until the 10th but, Circuit en banc reversed that. That's emergency. right. So here's a question. Um, are jurors advised that prosecutors are permitted to offer witnesses inducements in exchange for their testimony, but it's a crime if you do it as a defense lawyer? Are they, do they know that? They are not. And in fact, they're informed that Rats are a I'm sorry, snitches are a necessary uh, law enforcement tool for the protection of society so no one goes into your home and rapes your daughter tonight. I'm done with my cross. Would you, Thank would you. you like to? Um, I actually just want to weigh in a little bit on the snitches slash cooperators um, question. Uh, there's a stat that I, I, I saw that 43% of documented wrongful convictions in capital cases um, between 73 and 2004 were actually attributed to false testimony by um, cooperators. Um, and so, so we obviously have a problem. Um, what was the with, word you used? Cooperators? Yeah. <laughs> Snitches. I'm hoping to get um, the judge to go with rats by the end of today. Yeah. And so, so we have a problem, right, with, with the use. I mean, this is significant. People testified it falsely, and innocent people went um, and were, were you know, um, subject to the death penalty. Um, so, so one of the things that I said before was that there is some historical basis for um, deals for cooperators, but there's a couple of different sort of caveats to that. Um, one, someone who was um, more culpable could not testify against someone who was less culpable, which, of course, Scott sees um, uh, and the judge sees. Uh, and um, a judge was the one who was actually um, dealing with this and making this deal, not a prosecutor. Um, so, so I think the, the, the system um, for cooperators has to be changed. Um, and then with respect to going back to the point of, of um, if, in fact, a plea deal is offered, um, can we do something at trial that makes this more fair? I think so. And, and as the judge said, I've written about this where... Um, if, in fact, someone rejects a plea deal, I think the fair thing to do then, given that I think this is constitutionally problematic, is that that plea deal actually goes to the jury. The jury knows the actual sentence associated with the plea and knows the sentence associated with the original charge, and then the jury can, in fact, decide on what to um, convict. Um, and then I think maybe in some circumstances, um, Scott's clients will, in fact, take the, take the jury trial. Well, it, it'll happen in those cases where there is a potential defense, where there is hope of, of winning, but where the issue is loss is a crushing uh, defeat, it's going to help. Is it going to help in cases where you have all the other ancillary things that are going to make it 
uh, nearly impossible to win. And then again, you also have those cases, and I hate to admit this, there's guys who are guilty and they've got them nailed to the wall. Um, you know, they, they too would prefer not to go for the uh, 50 years if they can get five. Judge, I, I've got another question for you, but I don't want to, um, you may be, have something you just want to weigh in on right now, or I can ask you a, another question. As usual, I'll go off on a tangent for a minute. Please do. Uh, the, the idea that prosecutors uh, treat cooperating witnesses, rats. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> uh, more favorably uh, than uh, your neighbor as a witness uh, is a disgrace. The, the government is allowed to pay them money, cash money, uh, put them on their payroll, provide them with a new house in, in the country someplace under the Witness Protection Program, uh, give them all kinds of incentives. Uh, and yet, uh, they can't do that for your neighbor and wouldn't do it, uh, who's just a really good, upstanding witness. So Scott and I found an area of solid agreement. So now I have two questions. Um, do, you, do you have an understanding as a judge whether you would, you would likely be reversed or found to have abused your discretion if you advise the jury that only the prosecution is permitted to uh, offer inducements to witnesses and that the defense, while they might like to be able to do that, is not only forbidden from doing that, but in fact it would be a felony if the defense lawyer did it. What if you shared that information with a jury? Um, would that, is, would that be grounds for, do you think it would be grounds for reversing a, or, or uh, I suppose it would be for a new trial in favor of the prosecution? Well, I've avoided giving advisory opinions on issues that might come before me. Uh, it, I, think that's, I think it's a very interesting uh, question of law. So it leads to my second question, and, and I've shared with you this possibly florid uh, metaphor, but um, Early in my career, I, was, uh, I did a, a significant amount of medical malpractice defense work, and there was a case that a colleague of mine was involved with where um, an oncologist had prescribed an extremely toxic uh, form of chemotherapy, and it was so toxic that it was necessary to prescribe an additional medication to help the patient survive the toxicity uh, of, the, of the chemotherapy drug. And my question is, is that a fair metaphor for, for this situation where if we are prescribing for the justice system the end of plea bargaining, eliminating plea bargaining, is that remedy or that medication so toxic that perhaps we have to prescribe some other uh, saving procedure as well? It's not, we can't simply withdraw plea bargaining for the reasons that Scott has described, but perhaps we could do something simultaneously that would ameliorate or mitigate uh, the, the rather harrowing effects of, of eliminating plea bargain that Scott has touched on. Is that a possible way forward? I think the professor would have some ideas on that, but my idea is this. Uh, over time, uh, panels like this, uh, opinions that uh, country judges write uh, as the common law develops may well change uh, the uh, bar's view, the judiciary's view, uh, the public's view of plea bargaining as, as an invariable uh, re resolution of a criminal case. Uh, when I said that uh, I, I won't accept plea bargains uh, against the weight on the scales of the public's participation unless there are compelling reasons, I didn't say what those reasons might be. Just that they had to be case specific. Had to be case specific, what are they? I don't know, what are they? All right, 
So do you, you want to jump in? So I mean, I think if we, um, um, we eliminate plea bargaining, I just want to say that I think if we were to eliminate plea bargaining, um, I guess I'll just say a couple things. One, everyone keeps talking about efficiency and how this is what's talked about and this is necessary. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing in the Constitution that, that provides that any of the part of, of our government is supposed to be efficient. But for some reason, when we're talking about the jury, right, all of a sudden there's some kind of constitutional requirement of efficiency, and it's implicit, right, that that's required because they talk about it in the decisions. If we go down the street to Congress, right, there's nothing efficient about Congress. Um, we don't get rid of Congress because it's um, inefficient. No, really no part of our government is efficient, but somehow it becomes excuse for the jury, and I think we need to call that out. Um, if, in fact, we did get rid of uh, plea bargaining, I think what would happen is, you know, there would be some adjustment, right? We wouldn't have all the crimes that are on the books actually be enforced. Um, we would have different charging by prosecutors. The reason is, is that there's no money in the system to actually throw all these people into prison for lengthy sentences. Um, so I think the system would change. Um, and then, you know, we can talk about if we keep plea bargaining, what, what, what the I'll follow up for you. I yeah. want to suggest something that probably won't be provocative as between you and I, but others might find it to be yeah. so. Um, is it possible that the expense and inconvenience of a jury trial is a feature, not a bug? In other words, if the government is not prepared to spend several hundred thousand dollars to obtain a felony conviction, perhaps it ought not seek that felony conviction. Perhaps there is not enough at stake. What do you think about that? I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there is, a, there is a cost to our government, right? We set this system up, um, and, and a jury was a part of that. And, um, you know, if it, if it entails money, that's money that is constitutionally required. Um, I want to change tax a little bit and um, point to what I, for me is another elephant in the room, and that is that with the advent of DNA, we have the ability to a fairly high degree of reliability, not perfect, but a fairly high degree of, real, uh, of, of reliability, um, determine when people have been falsely convicted. Um, I believe the Innocence Project, which primarily uses DNA uh, to try to obtain uh, or, or to, to, uh, to exonerate convicted defendants, has reported that something like, uh, so they've, they've had about 300, a little over 300 people who they've exonerated through DNA evidence. Again, not perfect, but as reliable as we get in our system. The reports that I've seen say that approximately 10% of those 300 exonerees pled guilty to the crimes of which they were accused. That strikes me as extraordinary, and it points to something uh, very particular that I want to ask the panel about, and that is this. Um, again, I used to work in medical malpractice. My sister's a doctor. My father was an aerospace engineer who worked for NASA. Incentives, what happened to you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing good. No. Uh, <laughs> so, in systems where there's a great deal at stake, and there's a monumental failure, uh, the Challenger space shuttle crashes, uh, someone goes into the hospital to have this leg amputated, and they take the wrong leg, and that happens. One of the things that, that happens in serious institutions is that they, they drop everything, and they 
initiate a process that goes by different names, but oftentimes it's called a critical incident review. And it's not so much to figure out who's to blame, it's to study the process itself, to determine what could, po what, what shortcoming or what problem in this process could possibly have led to something as terrible as a plane crash, um, to the Challenger disaster, to the wrong leg getting amputated or whatever. I'm not aware that prosecutors do this. I know that there are conviction integrity units and so forth, but I'm not aware of, of any prosecutor's office that has as a policy where they, where, where, when someone is exonerated through DNA evidence, they put down everything they're doing and they say, my goodness, what is it about our process that led to that outcome and how can we change our process to not make that mistake again in future cases? Um, is anybody on the panel aware of this kind of critical incident review approach that we see in aerospace, that we see in, in medicine, we see in engineering? Are there prosecutors' offices that do this? You're shaking your head, Sujit. I don't think so. Okay. Um, Can I, I just want to, one thing that concerns me, you started out this, and I want to clear one thing up. DNA is uh, available as, a, as an evidentiary tool in a relatively small proportion of cases. You don't have them in drugs and frauds and business crime and white collar. So I just, the idea that if, you know, now we have DNA, now we can figure out who's really guilty and innocent, it's, it's a very limited realm. Now, it's exponentially out there in all the other crimes. If they're screwing up the crimes with DNA, they're screwing up the other crimes too. Um, but I, I, I don't want the impression that DNA is going to save us. DNA rarely comes into play. No, I appreciate that, and there's a great clarification. My point was actually... Um, even when we can be as sure as we can be, no, I, I they don't drop everything. Yeah. So that's, uh, thank you. So that's, that's concerning. Um, let's go back to something that, that sort of reared its head earlier, and I'd like to focus on a little bit, because it may be, I, I think it needs to be part of the discussion. There is this, um, this term, this institution, that is sometimes referred to as jury nullification. It carries a lot of baggage. Here at Cato, we prefer the term conscientious acquittal. But it refers to the idea that a jury may have some other function than just essentially you know, being there to help improve the empirical reliability of what happens. A bunch of disinterested people who evaluate the evidence to try to determine what really happened. That they may, they may have um, a separate role, which is essentially a political role, to try to ensure that justice gets done in particular cases. And I read an article recently that said that there is, and Judge, you referred to this earlier, but there's an actual real life, in, real life incident where Prosecutors in Montana had to dismiss a marijuana prosecution because they were unable to empanel a jury. They just couldn't get 12 people seated who said that they would be prepared to convict in a marijuana-related case. So what about the institution of jury nullification slash conscientious acquittal, which, to make clear, um, is, is an institution that goes back, and Suja, perhaps you could tell us more about the history of it, goes back sometime in Anglo-American law, where it was explicit at one time that a legitimate function of the jury is not simply to determine whether the factual elements of the crime have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but whether it would be just or not to convict that person of the crime at issue. Is that right? Yeah, um, and so historically you could you could do this, and this is certainly a, a role for the jury. I mean, you know, there, you have the the famous case of the the Zenger case, um, where you had um, in a sedition a, a prosecution for sedition, um, and um, the um, publisher um, uh, actually publishing um, articles about um, uh, criticizing the government uh, and the grand juries and those. Um, case in that case, um, the Zenger case refused to indict, and the jury um, said said no. Um, and so this is a historical rule for the jury to actually engage in nullification. And in fact, 
um, you know, in a, in a previous panel, we, I think we've talked about whether or not, um, you know, if it's nullification or if the law is vague and exactly what a jury is doing. But there are instances recently, you know, Clark mentions the Montana case, but, but we also have instances of, of a prosecution um, for um, something posted on Facebook um, uh, people doing rap um, lyrics um, that have some threats involved with them and the grand juries refusing to indict. Um, and so we have those circumstances that we actually see now. Um, and juries, if criminal juries were actually um, put into play, we'd probably see more of that. So a procedural question perhaps for the judge or for Scott. Um, is it permissible or should it be permissible for prosecutors to attempt to exclude from juries people who believe in jury nullification slash conscientious acquittal? I don't think so. Okay. Scott, have you seen I, it? I, Is there? No, I'm not, I'm not aware of it. I, I don't think that's the case. Although, um, not, not to put on my skunk hat again, but uh, this- I didn't know you took it off. <laughs> jury, nullif <laughs> jury nullification um, sounds wonderful because you, you only hear about it as a single-edged sword. But just consider the fact that jury nullification happens all the time. It's always been happening. It's those juries that convict even though proof beyond a reasonable doubt was not shown. Juries fudge the law all the time. They don't always fudge it in the defendant's favor. Yeah. Sometimes, you ever notice how police officers on trial seem to always get a lot more benefit of the doubt than anyone else. There's no jury nullification instruction. This is people. So before you start saying to the jury, here's the law, now do whatever you feel you want to do, be very careful that your friends and neighbors love you as much as you think they do, because they may not. So we have, uh, it's about 10 past, so we have 20 minutes, and I thought we'd take some Q&A from the audience, but I want to give each of the panelists an opportunity to to offer any final thoughts, don't feel that you have to, but if you want to, if there's anything you want to say before we start taking questions, please feel free. Um, one of the things that, that I touched on earlier, I think if we're going to continue to have um, pleas, um, there should no, be no waiver of the, the grand jury indictment, and people should be required to get all exculpatory evidence before they uh, take a plea. And something that um, Judge Rakoff um, out of the Southern District of New York has, has um, recommended and the, um, the report, the NACDL report recommends is a judge's involvement in the plea bargaining process. I think these are all important um, aspects that need to be included if we continue the plea bargaining process as we have it. So at a bare minimum, you would prefer to see it eliminated, but at a bare minimum, we need substantial reform yeah. in your view. Yeah. Judge? Having given a little bit of thought to this over the past year, I find most reprehensible the very idea that liberty is currency, mm. that we actually bargain with liberty, that we trade a lighter sentence for our liberty or a reduction in the amount of time we're going to spend in jail. I don't like the whole process. I think that's fairly clear from what I've said earlier. But do I think that it's going to change overnight? No, I don't. Uh, but I think that panel discussions like you've hosted here today, and uh, I don't really expect that anybody sits around at night and reads the uh, 
federal reporter and has even thought to look at any of my opinions. So I, it's going to take something like this uh, if we're going to see anything improve. And it's going to take the skunk at the garden uh, party laying out how bad the system is as it works uh, before people become persuaded that there's change needed. One of the things that uh, the judge put in his Walker opinion was about the need for a community catharsis. And what I think is that it's all very appealing to have public participation in the process, to have transparency in the process. Um, this is not the first experiment where community catharsis has been elevated above the rights of the individual. Um, and it worked very well the last time, which was uh, in the Colosseum in Rome when they threw the uh, Christians to the lions. And everybody in the crowd loved it. But I'm the guy talking about the Christians, talking about the people who weren't going to survive. I like all this stuff. I want trials. I want public participation. I want platitudes. Who doesn't love a platitude? But at some point, this all comes down to individual human beings. Some have sad stories that make up the first three paragraphs of an article. And some have really awful stories because they're really awful people. But every one of them is a human being. And our system doesn't accommodate this. And I don't know how many pieces of this dumb Rube Goldberg machine have to be taken apart to make it work or to bring us back to a point where at least it doesn't look like some ridiculous contraption that it disgraces all of us. You can see why uh, defense lawyers always like to have the last slap and the prosecution gets it. Well, I'm going to uh, take it. It's a good summation. Thank you, Judge. But I get to go last. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see the word catharsis in any of the judge's opinions, and I don't think that's what's at issue. Um, I'd like to quote from the last of those opinions in which the judge said that the criminal jury trial is fundamental to the American scheme of justice and effectively promotes a motivated and educated populace that respects the law, holds faith in the judicial system, and is deterred from participating in crime. Jury trials serve the people's right to be informed as to what occurs in their courts and reinforce the fact that the law comes from the people. I don't think that's about catharsis. I think that's about democracy. You're that's right. why I had to write three opinions. You're right, Judge. The prosecutor always gets the last word. <laughs> Questions from the audience, yes, sir. And now, uh, if you would, um, if you if you care to, please uh, state your name and if you care to, your affiliation, and then um, your question. J.J. Mahoney, I'm a uh, judge here in town in administrative court, but I've got uh, a question based upon my prior background. I came from a judicial system where there was no plea bargaining allowed. Every case went to trial. The defendant could plead guilty if he wished to, and the jury was instructed that they should be considering that as a mitigating factor because the jury imposed the sentence in that case. But going to the judge's point, um, there came a time when there was pressure in the system to change the rule, to allow plea bargains. And what was it that caused that? What caused that was the fact that prosecutors did not want to have to put child sex abuse victims on the stand. 
And so there was an exception made for plea bargains in those cases. And the exception became popular because uh, speedy trial wasn't a problem anymore. Uh, the uh, demands on the system was lower. So plea bargains were allowed in all cases. And what I observed as the consequence of that is something that hasn't been discussed here at all today. That is a se severe uh, degradation of the litigation skills of the young counsel in the system. And so you have the, the old-time defense counsel who have those skills, but the young prosecutors don't. And uh, they uh, get beat up in court all the time. And I have seen that even now in the administrative hearings that I conduct, the uh, severe degradation of uh, litigation skills in the uh, attorneys. Suja, I'd like to frame the question a little bit more specifically with you. That uh, idea that plea bargaining was primarily mo motivated by a desire to avoid having certain witnesses have to testify is not consistent with my, rec my understanding of the history. My understanding of the history is that we see an, an early initial spike in plea bargaining associated with prohibition, with alcohol prohibition in the 1920s and early 1930s, and we see a second major spike in plea bargaining associated with uh, the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 1990s. What, what is your understanding of the history? Yeah, and I would just add to that that uh, Judge Rakoff has written about this, and I'm sure others have written about the fact that after the Civil War, crime increased, and you saw a spike there um, in the late um, 19th century. So, I mean, I think... Um, 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 the, the judge um, makes an important point about the, the possibility of, of benefits to um, plea bargaining. Um, at the same time, um, uh, the people who are accused of these, you know, of these crimes, um, in my mind, shouldn't have the, the trial tax attached um, to that um, to that plea deal versus a trial. Let me also frame a question for the judge. I had the opportunity uh, some time ago to ask an extremely senior DOJ official whether uh, he shared my concern that as young prosecutors um, increasingly lack courtroom experience, their corresponding ability to accurately assess the strength of any particular case may diminish as well and, and essentially put them in a position where they're not as able to distinguish between the cases that should go forward and the ones that shouldn't and what sort of a deal should be offered in a given case. Um, is it, do you think that's a valid concern? Yes. All right. I guess I got a leading question of the judge as well. <laughs> I mean, just, and obviously we don't want you to name any names, but has the, has the overall proficiency of practitioners in your court diminished? I'm like any other old guy. Uh, <laughs> I think that lawyers were better uh, <laughs> 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I started, 50 years ago. You caught me on uh, that one. And it's, uh, I can't, I graduated in 1970, and if, if I could have done the math, I would have gone to med school. Well, they were much more experienced back in the day, is that right, Scott? They were. More no, I want, yeah, I want to get to this. It's a very important point. We should have made it, emphasized it more. Yeah. If young lawyers don't try cases, young lawyers don't know how to try cases. You can take a clinic, you can take a class, a professor can tell you, you don't learn how to try cases except by going in the trenches, getting your butt kicked, having a witness rip your throat out for asking a stupid question on cross. You need to get trial chops. You need to get experience. And if we're not trying cases, we're going to end up with a generation of lawyers who is not capable, and the entire skill set of trying cases will be lost to the legal profession. So particularly what? true now, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. Particularly true now in the criminal law, in that the uh, way up in the 90th percentile and above, 
all of the cases are tried by professional prosecutors against professional uh, defenders. Uh, mm. The private bar is little involved in the defense of criminal cases, Scott notwithstanding. The overwhelming majority of the cases are tried by public defenders and prosecutors. Uh, well, they aren't tried, but they would be if they went. They to would trial. be if they went to trial. And let me add um, also that you're going to have a whole set of judges who haven't had any. Who've never tried a case. I mean, right? Uh, and so that adds to the, the issue. So well, not only have they not only never tried a case as a lawyer. Many of them don't try any criminal cases because they don't come before them. It used to average about, uh, I don't know, five criminal cases a year for judges. I, I don't know what, it's ridiculously low now. Can you think, uh, nobody dreams that when you go to a federal courthouse, uh, you could, uh, and I wouldn't advise this, but you could shoot a cannon through any courtroom and you wouldn't hit anybody. <laughs> So may, maybe we're pushing in the wrong direction. Maybe what we need to do is get plea bargaining up to 100%, and then this lack of trial experience won't be as big a problem. We can get rid of a lot of judges. <laughs> um, sir. Jim Lowen, sociologist. Um, you, haven't you mentioned it, but you haven't made much of a distinction between um, grand juries and trial juries. And I wondered if anybody would care to. And another kind of related area would be family court, which sometimes gets juries, especially if there's charges of trial snatch or things like that. Uh, and in, at least Vermont uh, even has lay people in family court as, as uh, side judges. So I wonder if uh, either of those common, uh, areas, the same thing applies or more or less or what distinctions you would make. It's in your wheelhouse, Sujan. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's important to have both, you know, the grand jury deciding as well as the um, criminal jury, um, those 24 people standing in the way. Um, but um, as we've talked about, um, we've allowed the waiver of the grand jury. Um, we have a lot of states that actually don't require grand juries because the grand jury provision hasn't been incorporated um, uh, against the states, which is again an exception that the United States Supreme Court has made, um, basically based on on the on the jury, um, and so I think um, both the grand jury and the criminal jury are are necessary, are 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 important checks. People will criticize the grand jury and say, you know, the grand jury, you know, will indict a, a ham sandwich. This is the this is the famous saying. Um, but um, the fact is, is we see situations where grand juries sometimes don't indict. Um, and um, we also, it's just another, another additional check that I think is important in the system. There was a story out of, I believe, Tempe, Arizona, uh, three or four months ago, in which a grand jury there had earned the nickname, something like the notorious 229. They were like, the, that was their number. And they were consistently refusing to indict on certain charges. So it may not be working consistently the way that it was intended to, but it sometimes still works. All right, I go in the back there and um, let's see. Yes, sir, in the, right in the middle, white shirt. Yep. Thank you, uh, Jacob Rich, Reason Foundation. Um, I was told recently that Alaska had a plea bargain ban and that the number of sentences and the mean sentence length both increased. So I'm curious how that might um, fare into the equation. I don't know anything about that. Neither do I. 
So my understanding is that Alaska experimented with banning plea bargaining, but recognized fairly quickly that it was impossible to practically eliminate plea bargaining. All they really did was drive it underground even more. Uh, and they realized it was essentially a fool's errand and they went a different direction. So I, don't, I can't speak to the statistics. What I can say is that my understanding is they experimented with it and realized very quickly that it was a failure because it was happening anyway. It was just happening with even less transparency, if that's possible, than it does now. Next one over. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Emma Ferriola. I'm a law student. Um, this is directed more specifically towards Mr. Greenfield. Um, if the value of plea bargaining is to act as a mitigator on a flawed and overly severe system, do you think there's a potential that it's perpetuating that system by acting as a Band-Aid that kind of hides it from public view and obscures the fact that there is a flaw um, and then kind of a follow-up if there will obviously be a huge human cost in taking away that band-aid how do you mitigate that well yeah of course it's a band-aid it's a terrible system the system is flawed all over the place so we're trying to keep as many people from being slaughtered as possible um, we had this discussion suja and judge Ratkoff and i uh, last year about what happens if we, if we got rid of this. And my point then, it's the same point now, is I really don't know what the right answer is that's gonna make that best possible system, but I do know that as soon as you start pulling pieces off the machine, people will suffer. So we can have a nice academic discussion about it, but touch my plea bargaining, and you're gonna have people dying in prison. So those deaths are gonna happen. If you're not okay with people dying in the meantime while you're figuring out how to do it better, then don't make it go away. Judge, you and I, I believe I recall, discussed when you and I first spoke on the phone, the possibility that there could be unintended consequences, that there could, that there could be essentially a strategic response on the part of prosecutors. Is that a concern? Is there a way to mitigate that? <clears throat> I've given a considerable thought, and my... Uh, answers to your questions go from one end to the other. I think that prosecutors would be unlikely to return the 19-count indictment with one conspiracy count and trade away the 18 counts if they knew they were going to have to try 19. Uh, uh, on, the, on the other hand, I think that Scott's uh, point about we are dealing with real people with real time is uh, the fundamental problem with the criminal justice system to begin with. Should we really lock up so many people? Uh, should we lock them up for these crimes? But that's not the, that's a public policy political arena that I'm not a part of. Uh, I got to vote, but. Sir, I've seen your hand since the beginning. Make it very brief, if you would. We have uh, just a couple of minutes left. That was a terrible answer. Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. Question for Scott. Have you ever counseled any of your clients to reject a plea bargain and strong, strongly recommended that they go to trial and can you tell us what happened? Thank you. Uh, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Fantastic. Last question in the back there. Wait for a microphone if you would. Oh, I could just to finish up on that last thing. Yeah, we do go to trial sometimes, more so the older guys. Yeah, and we sometimes beat the case. They're in the books. You can read them. It happens. The question is, are you going to be 
the three out of 100 who do it, or are you going to be the 97 who don't? Uh, John Hilton, I, I think we can all imagine situations where a defendant would actually prefer a bench trial rather than a jury trial, but as I'm sure you're all aware, the federal rules of criminal procedure require the government to consent to the defendant's uh, desire to waive their right to a jury trial and get a bench trial instead, and so the government can effectively block a defendant from having a bench trial, which they might prefer. I wonder if the <coughs> panel would like to comment on that aspect of the criminal rules. Well, uh, one thing that I would like to say is, uh, I mean, Article 3, Section 2 states, the trial of all crimes except in case of impeachment shall be by jury. It actually does not provide that a judge should decide. So this is, it sounds like a radical statement, but the fact is, is that that system, the idea of having judges decide instead of juries, it's not, it's not, it's not constitutional. I can't speak for all judges because I didn't go to the last meeting, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be I don't want to be the jury. If it serves my client's interest, I'll waive. We'd like to thank everybody, including the panelists, for a wonderful discussion. I do want to end on the following note. This is a 1968 Supreme Court case called Duncan versus Louisiana, where the question was whether um, uh, a, a statute where a defendant would re could receive a death penalty only if he or she went to trial was unduly coercive, and the Supreme Court held that it was, and uh, didn't strike down the entire statute, uh, but, but severed and struck down that provision. There's a passage in this, in this opinion, it's a 1968 Supreme Court opinion that I'd like to leave all of you with. Providing an accused with the right to be tried by a jury of his peers gave him an inestimable safeguard against the corrupt or overzealous prosecutor and against the compliant, biased, or eccentric judge. Think about what we have lost in practically eliminating citizen participation from our criminal justice system in the form of the jury trial. Thank you very much. <clears throat>